Hi there, and welcome to Grief is My Superpower. I'm Mark Lemon, award-winning children's author, bereavement ambassador, and your host for this podcast. Each week, I'll be interviewing incredible people that get open and honest about their own experience with grief. When I was 12 years old, my dad was murdered, and my life changed forever. I try to explore with my guests if it's possible to live a happy and fulfilled life after the death of a loved one. You can find me as Mark Lemon Official on Instagram and at the Lemon Drop Books website. For this episode, I speak with author, photographer and mother, Penny Winsor. Penny speaks to me about the death of her mum and her new book, Tender. You can find Penny on Instagram and Twitter as Penny Winsor. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment wherever you are listening to this podcast. By doing this, it will help us to reach more people in need of support at a tough time. This podcast is in support of children's bereavement charity, Winston's Wish. Okay, so as mentioned in my introduction, today I'm speaking with someone that I've recently connected with over the last year. I've been extremely fortunate to have a coffee with her in London, and she also speaks really well about her own experience with grief, and it's Penny Winsett. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. For the listeners, do you want to just um, introduce yourself and who you are and all that sort of stuff, please? Sure thing. Um, so I am, oh, where do I begin? Um, I am an Australian living in London. Um, I've got two children. Um, I have been a professional photographer for the last 15 years and um, I am now an author with a book coming out very shortly. Yeah, that's a big, big thing coming up for you, isn't it? But look, we'll, we will talk um, more about that. Um, very soon. But for now, are you able to just share with the listeners about your own experience with grief, please? Sure. Um, it's really interesting, actually, because I have just written uh, about grief quite a lot in um, the in the book that I've just written. Um, and so it has been on my mind quite a lot. I um, My mother died by suicide when I was 22, which was 20 years ago now. Um, and it was just shortly after I'd moved to London. Um, she had been very unwell for about 11 years before that. She had been very well when I was young. Um, and when I was 11, she started experiencing severe panic attacks. And, and that eventually led to quite severe bouts of, of depression and um, mental breakdown, alcoholism, and a cycle of well and unwell throughout my teenage years. And I was one of her carers during that time. Um, and then she died when I was 22. Wow. Obviously, anyone's grief story is, is terrible, but your particular story is quite powerful. I was reading about it last night in terms of, you know, the point when your mum started to, I guess, get sick in terms of, uh, you know, her emotions and how she was feeling. And then, like you mentioned also in the book that we talk about, the ending up caring for her in a sense of being the one person for her at that time, you know, when it all sort of started. And were you about 11 years old? I was 11 when she started. Yeah, there was, <clears throat> I remember the day it started. It was very, very clear as before and after, if you know what I mean. She had a very, a very severe panic attack one day. Um, and we took her to A&E um, thinking she'd had a heart attack. 
and then we that was the first day I heard the word panic attack. Uh, I think that was probably the first time my mum had heard the word too, probably. Um, it was in the late 80s and, you know, obviously it wasn't something we was really talked about very much back then. And it, it didn't happen then very suddenly. I think the next over the next two years, things gradually got worse. And then by the time I was about 13, that's when things really spiralled. My parents separated at that point and actually I thought things were going to improve because we moved into town. We were living in the countryside. We moved into town and everything was going to be a bit more accessible and it was going to be much easier for me and my brothers to be independent and all that sort of stuff, taking pressure off my mum. And so I actually thought things were going to really improve at that point. Um, and the opposite happened. She became very, very unwell and would spend weeks at a time in her bedroom. Um, and she was in and out of psychiatric hospitals as well at that point. So either we would go and stay with friends or a babysitter would come and stay with us. My dad actually was, um, had always worked abroad my whole life and he was living in America by this point. So living with him was not an option. I know sometimes people have said to me, why didn't you just go live with your dad? <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't a practical option. And in fact, my dad had never been our main carer at all because he traveled so much. So, um, we wanted to be with our mum um, as well as it being the most practical option as well. But so I'd say by the time I was 13, I was, I was very much her care. Although of course I didn't know that word at that point. I had no idea about that word. And I, I never, um, I actually didn't know I was a young carer. Probably. I can't even remember exactly when it was, maybe when I was around 30. So years after she had died, I was like, Oh, I was a young carer. Right. Okay. I think in our minds, we have this idea that carers are people who provide high levels of personal care. So, you know, getting people in and out of bed or washing them or feeding them um, and that kind of thing. But actually, and that is the case for some people, definitely that's the case. But for a lot of people, it's um, it's managing the rest of the household on behalf of that person. Um, it might be managing all the finances. It might be doing all the care coordination, coordinating with doctors, or it could be... Um, providing all that emotional support for that person who's unwell. There's lots of different ways in which we can care for others. Um, and so I think, you know, part of the difficulty at that time um, in the 90s was that partly my mum felt like she couldn't talk about her mental illness because people didn't understand and people were very critical of her. Uh, people were very critical because I think, I think people thought she was a bad mother because she couldn't mother us in the same way. Um, and that was really devastating to her uh, to feel that judgment. And also, um, I think as well, I I didn't speak about it with anyone because I didn't even have the words to describe what was happening in our house. Um, my mother actually worked for a cancer organisation and um, worked with people who were terminally ill. And she even said to me when I was a teenager, I wish I'd, I'd had cancer because she felt like she was incredibly unwell and nobody believed her <laughs> or cared um and that she was judged for her illness um rather than what we really now understand about mental illness which is it's it is it's not necessarily within our control i mean that's a that's a traumatic thing for you to go through at such a young age in, in terms of coming into your teenage years and how did it affect you you know, throughout those younger years, because obviously you were still going to school and, and at the same time having to, like you say, care for your mum. I think at first, and it happened so slowly, I don't think I realised what was happening until we were quite deep into it. And I realised suddenly, oh, I'm completely looking after myself now. And I think that's often the case with caring situations. Um, 
it can take a long time for it to twig that that's what you're doing. Um, and, and often people don't ask for help until it's kind of in a crisis for that same reason, because they don't realize they need the help. They don't realize it's possible to get help. Um, I think, I think at first I did just sort of try and get on with it. I was getting to the point where I was able to get to and from school independently, especially when we moved when I was 13 back into town. So I was getting the train to and from school. No, she wasn't checking if I was doing my homework or even if I was going to school, I don't think, although I'm sure the school would have gotten touched if I wasn't. But um, I was sort of doing all of that stuff myself as well as doing stuff around the house. And we were very fortunate um, that my mum was able to afford a bit of help. So we did have someone coming in a couple of times a week um, who would check on my mum and do some cleaning and things like that, cook a couple of meals and stick them in the fridge. So I wasn't, we weren't completely on our own. It would have been, it's very, very different scenario for families who are living in poverty and who have insecure housing and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's, we were, we were in a very fortunate position, but I think what eventually happened was that I, um, because I couldn't really speak about what was happening because I didn't really know exactly what was happening. Um, I did become very isolated from everyone. And although on the surface, I continued to see my friends and have friends, I didn't speak about what was happening in the house at all. And I didn't feel like I could speak about what was happening in the house at all. And that was partly because I knew that people would judge my mother. And I knew that she was ashamed of, of, of how unwell she was as well. Um, I think the most wonderful thing for me was that my mum was really emotionally articulate. So when she wasn't in a crisis, we would talk about it a lot. We talked a lot about her mental health. We talked a lot about her stints in private hospitals. I met lots of the patients she became friends with over the years. My mum was a very unjudgmental person and very open-minded and very empathetic and she made a lot of friends <laughs> during her stays in different psychiatric units. And we, we really processed it together, I think. Um, and it wasn't until after she died when I was 22 um, uh, and we were in that awful stage immediately after her death when I had to go back to Australia for a funeral. And I had realised that I had actually been grieving for her for 10 years and I, I don't think I would have known until she died that that's what it was, um, the pain that you feel when you're losing someone bit by bit, um, anticipatory grief, um, which it's known as. Um, I don't think it's easy to recognise when you're in the middle of it, um, but you do often have to grieve for somebody before they have died. Um, in my mother's case, it was I had to really let go of the mother I had had for the first half of my childhood because she was a super mum. She was, you know, had we had a beautiful house. It was always, you know, kept to a really high standard. She adored being a mother. She never kind of never seemed to moan or complain about our demands. Um, and obviously there were three of us and my dad constantly travelled, so it was all on her. Um, and she thrived when I was young. She absolutely loved it. She loved gardening. She loved being in the house. Um she was very, very loved by all of my friends who always happy to come for sleepovers and come to dinner in our house because she was very loved. And she had a lot of friends. We socialised a lot. We always had people around. Um, and to go from that to a mother who locked herself away in her bedroom for weeks at a time and forgot to come to school events and forgot to come to parent-teachers nights and got drunk and didn't turn up at something and I'd be left 
slightly embarrassed that everyone else's parents had turned up and mine hadn't. Um, I had to really learn to let go of of the mother I had once had, um, and that was hard. That was really hard, and that was definitely part of the process which ended in her dying and letting go of her fully, if you know what I mean. I was just wondering whether you could take us back to when you found out that your mum had died when you were 22 um, and obviously you would just move to London and obviously you're starting a new new life essentially. just wonder if you could take us back to that moment. Sure and this was 2000 so um, as you can imagine it was all a little bit harder for each other to for us to get a hold of each other in 2000 than it, than it would be now. Um, I did have a mobile phone, but I think I'd only been in London for about four weeks, so I hadn't given everyone the number yet In back in Australia. My mum had the number. Um, but So it, I was a bit hard to track down at first. Um, in the end, um, it was my dad who got a hold of me, and my parents had been divorced at this point, I think, for 10 years. Um, and he called... Um, and I could just hear in his voice, first of all, the time of day he called, he was working in Canada at the time and I saw the time of day and I was like, uh, why are you calling me now? You should be working right now. Um, and he told me, um, and it's, it's, it's quite hard to explain the mixture of feelings when you've been waiting for a phone call for 10 years, because I think her first suicide attempt was when I was 13 or 14 and there was a number of them and there was a period of time when I was 14, 15, 16 where I was expecting it to happen all the time because she was in a really bad way quite a lot of the time. Um, and so there were there were, had been many years where I'd been on alert for that phone call. Um, and then I had relaxed a bit more because even though it had continued, she'd very much looked had fallen into this pattern of getting into a crisis, getting much better again, having some good months, going downhill, going into a crisis again. It was kind of a cycle that she was going through. Um, and we'd gotten very accustomed to it, actually. Like, it wasn't all terrible. Some of the bad times were terrible, but, you know, we also had some really fantastic good times as well. So I think I was a bit lulled into that sort of sense of this is just going to continue um, and she's going to be fine and maybe she will always have the struggle, but it's, it can continue. So when I did finally get that call, phone call, it was in some ways a complete shock because I'd gotten so used to this cycle and I could, assumed it would continue. Um, and in some ways I'd been expecting it for a very long time as well. So it was a real mixture of feelings of like, oh, hang on, no, I expected to keep doing this. I expected to keep having to support her. I expected to keep being on the phone. And I expected, even after moving to London, I expected to fly back to Australia regularly to to help her. And I certainly expected to be supporting her over the phone. Um, yeah, I just, I didn't think it was going to end. And I'm sure that's probably quite similar to some people whose parents have a, um, a terminal illness, which goes on for a very long period of time as well, um, where you know, perhaps where treatment can prolong life for quite a while. Um, there's a, a shock and yet and, and yet no shock at the same time. Do you know what? I just, I came across some powerful words in your, in your new book, Tender. And um, yeah, these words, amidst the shock and acute pain I felt at the permanence of it, a part of me deep inside released a breath 
I'd been holding for years. It was no longer my job to look after her. And I just thought, they're really powerful words, aren't they? Yeah, I think it's a scary thing to articulate when you've been supporting someone, the sense that there is some relief when you're not supporting them anymore. Um, I know that a lot of people find that hard to articulate because it doesn't mean you are glad they're gone. Like I am so far from glad that my mother died when she did. I would love it if she had, if she was still around today. I really, really, really wish she did. She did, <clears throat> you know, survive. I, um, and especially because I think it would, it's possible, it's possible to survive this kind of illness. But at the same time, I can't deny that there wasn't a sense of relief that that 10 years of waiting for that phone call was over. Um, in, in those years, in my mid-teens, when things were particularly difficult, I, I expected to find her dead every time I came home from school. And it's a hard thing to carry around for so many years. And so there is a small sense of relief, um, but it's so intermingled with pain that it's sometimes hard to, to articulate that without saying, without feeling um, really ashamed, I guess. And that's part of the reason I wanted to talk about it in the book, because I think so many people, and I think carers particularly, because of how much responsibility they have for another person's life, I think carers do often feel a tiny bit of relief when the person they're supporting has died. Definitely not always, definitely not always, but, um, but they can. It is possible and it doesn't mean that you don't feel an immense amount of pain and that you wouldn't also do anything to have them back again. So moving on to motherhood, I guess, because you're, you're a mother of two and how do you think the death of your mum sort of changed your perspective on motherhood and, and how you parent your, your own children? I think perhaps not my mother's death but her illness has affected the way I do absolutely everything in my life. I think um, because my mother had been, you know, a classic martyr mother, um, she had done absolutely everything for us and had put us first above everything. Um, and because of all that time we spent in my teens um, talking about what had happened with my mother, I know she regretted that. I know she regretted it massively. She didn't regret being a mother. She absolutely loved it. It was her most favourite thing in the whole world and it was the thing she was most glad she did in her life. But she did regret not taking better care of herself. Um, and she was very clear about that when I was a teenager, that she had a lot of regrets about that. And I swore to myself that I would not do the same. And it's been easy to keep that promise to myself because of what ended up happening to my mum. My mum... Um, suffered enormously but also we all suffered enormously what I went through with my mother I wouldn't want my own children going through and that perspective has made it easier I think for me to look after myself and to put my first myself my needs um, in line with my children's needs not necessarily first but to put myself equal to my children um, I've found that much easier than I know a lot of my friends have. I know a lot of my friends have really struggled with their own needs as parents. Um, but I think what I witnessed in my mother really cemented how I wanted to be a mother. Um, it's not that I don't ever feel guilty or anything like that. There's a lot of things I feel guilty about in motherhood as all mothers do, but there's no way I'm going to sacrifice myself for them. There's no way. Because I know ultimately only 
that they will be the ones that suffer if I do that. Absolutely. I mean, that's a big thing, isn't it, at the moment? But it's a big thing because, you know, we all need to, to be happy and, and um, channel any, any negativity that we have into, into helping ourselves to then help our children. You know, I think it's a big thing, you know, just having that time out of, to, to support ourselves, you know, like you, everything you just said. Yeah, I agree with Yeah, I think it's given a lot of lip service. I think we talk about it a lot, but I don't see it amongst my friends often. And it, it's in so many ways, our culture, no matter what is sort of said on the surface, our culture in so many ways does not let women particularly, but I think um, it's a problem for all parents, but I think for women particularly, um, the idea that you would put your own needs as equal to that of other members of your family is still very much frowned upon. And it is really hard to fight against that. You know, when every message you're receiving culturally is telling you that um your needs as a mother are not important everybody else's needs are more important um it's really really challenging so I definitely don't blame anyone for not being able to do it because it is I do feel like I'm fighting against a massive cultural tidal wave that's telling me that I don't deserve to have breaks I don't deserve to work and earn my own money and paying to my own pension and all these things, which particularly at the moment is extremely challenging. But even aside from what's going on at the moment, um, it's, you know, me being able to earn a living and pay into a pension is not deemed as important as um, men being able to do the same. Um, and I think that's absolutely pervasive in our society. And um, we need to be really clear about fighting against it. Just again, taking you back to when you, you know, when you moved to, to the UK and your mum died, how did you find grieving in a new country? Um, and being in London and just sort of having to, to go through your grief. Yeah, how, how did you find the experience? It's so interesting because I think when I flew back the next day to Australia, um, I was really worried that once I got there, I wouldn't be able to get back on the plane and come back again, um, that I would somehow get sucked in to home again or something I don't know but actually I had a week with my family and my mom's sisters and my dad flew back and um, my brothers um, and it all culminated in the funeral a week later and that process was so healing um, until that point actually I had not lost anyone very close to me particularly um, at that point the three grandparents that had been alive when I was born were still alive so um, I hadn't lost anyone close to me particularly and I had no idea at that point just how important the funeral was going to be and it was unbelievably healing, that process of planning and doing the funeral. Um, so I was in Australia for a couple of weeks and then I came back again and I was a bit worried. I thought, oh, God, it's winter in London and um, and what what is it going to be like? Nobody here knows her. Nobody here at all had ever met my mother Um and I was really worried about that, but actually it was really nice. I arrived back and I got on with my life and I had new friends and I had a career that I loved and I wasn't constantly worrying about my mother and it was actually okay. It was really, it was really quite okay. Um, <clears throat> I did, I didn't talk about how she died. Um, I think particularly back then, I think partly because I was young and always worried about upsetting people in a way that I have learned to be less afraid of now. Um, 
but at that point I was very acutely aware of other people's emotions and telling people that your mother died by suicide, people are often very shocked when you tell them. And sometimes people also get very upset and I felt a huge responsibility to other people. I don't know. Well, I do know why, um, <clears throat> because of the way I was raised <laughs> and because the way our culture is telling girls that they have to be responsible for everyone's emotions all the time. Um, I was afraid to talk about how she died because not because I've found it upsetting because other people found it upsetting. Um, it took me a long time to realize I was not responsible for everybody else's emotions all the time. And also to understand that actually people find it really reassuring that I can talk about my mother's suicide openly. Um, whenever I speak about it online, on Instagram, or anytime I've written about it, um, people get in contact and they feel really glad and reassured that they can hear someone speaking about it in a quite reassuring um, and plain way because suicide does touch so many people. Um, I think probably most people know somebody that has died by suicide um, and it's it's really hard to have this inside you without ever being able to speak about it. And so I think um, me speaking about it is actually quite helpful to other people. Um, so I think at first I really, really couldn't speak about it. Um, and then it, over the years, I realized that it was not my responsibility to, um, make sure everyone was happy all the time. And also that it was actually reassuring to some other people when I could speak openly about it as well. And I think the other thing I really worried about was, um, that people would judge my mother. And I worried about that because they did judge her. They really did. I'm not, I wasn't making it up in my mind. People were very judgmental about it. I heard, I heard people like I, I had people who didn't know how my mother had died. You know, if something would come up in conversation about suicide, oh, how could anyone do that? So selfish. A mother couldn't do it. If, you, if a mother loved her children, she could never do that. And I knew that was bullshit. I knew it was complete bullshit because I had lived with my mother um, who was, you know, in a very, who was very unwell for 10 years. And I knew that she loved us more than anything in the whole world. And it is nothing to do with wanting, want, having suicidal feelings has nothing to do with how much you love the people who are here with you. It has nothing to do with that. Like it's a completely separate thing. And I know that that judgment that people have about it comes from a place of ignorance. Um, but it still used to upset me so much. And I used to feel very protective over my mother's memory. And so I didn't like to talk about it because I didn't like to hear anyone judge her. Um, I don't feel that way at all now. I don't, care actually now if people judge her because I know it's not the truth and so I really don't worry about what people think of her anymore because I know she was a wonderful mother and it doesn't really matter if some random person I'm having you know a work lunch with uh thinks that she was a bad mother it doesn't matter it doesn't matter so that took me a long time to be able to let those feelings go and know that yeah, it just doesn't matter if, if somebody's judgmental. And, and the fact is, the more we talk about it, the more people will understand and the less judgmental people will be. I completely uh, am with you on everything you just said in terms of um, feeling able to tell people about, you know, how your parent died. Yeah, it's similar in the sense that both of us lost a parent in a, in a quite shocking way. And, um, yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, in terms of, sort of knowing how to tell someone, 
your, like you said, your, your business lunch or whatever it might be. And they're like, wow, okay. It's, you know, it's a quite a shocking thing. But like you say, the more we talk about it, the more we let people know that it's okay to talk about this, this shocking subject, you know, because there are so many people out there who have experienced a similar experience and, and they're afraid to, to share their own feelings. And that can only be a, a negative thing because you're keeping it in and you're locking it inside and you're not sharing your emotions, isn't it? So, you know, it's quite a cathartic conversation to have because, like you say, that person might turn around and just be a really great ear to, to talk to. Yeah, I mean, the amount of times I've said something when 15 years ago I wouldn't have and someone's like, oh, yeah, my aunt died that way and, you know, and then they'll want to talk about it for five minutes and they haven't spoken about it for five years or ten years or something. Um, it can sometimes be incredibly helpful to be the person that's comfortable with it. Um, and whenever I've spoken about it, you know, on something like Instagram, I do get messages saying, oh, I'm just so glad I'm not alone. And I think with, you know, what is quite a violent death, um, people can feel very alone with it um, and have very mixed feelings about it. Um, my experience is different to other people in that I feel like incredibly lucky that I, my mum, who was, was very um, uh, emotionally articulate, we talked about her illness a lot and a lot of people don't have that. A lot of people are, um, have somebody very close to them die and they had no idea what was going on in their head. And I think that can also be really, really awful and does change the grief process. And I think, you know, despite it being a very difficult teenage years, <laughs> I was also very lucky in that way that my mum was able to kind of, um, articulate what she was going through it definitely helped my grieving process definitely I mean it sounds like a, a really kind of a healing process that you went through in terms of you know helping her and um, just going through that with her I guess well, I just want to move on to your fantastic new book Tender which is out on the 11th of June what prompted you to write this book and how have you found the process well it was interesting I was actually working on some uh something completely different and I just couldn't um I just couldn't let some of the ideas that have ended up in the book kind of go away and I could quite work out how I wanted to articulate them I had no interest in writing a straight-up memoir and I also had no interest in writing about parenthood and being a parent to an autistic child and then I went home to Australia um and I was catching up with a very close friend I've known all my life whose mother has Alzheimer's um, and we were having a conversation of wine and chatting about some of her experiences with her mum and some of and I was updating on her, her with some of the things that are going on with Arthur at the moment and we were just having such a laugh because we were like oh my god like looking after a parent with Alzheimer's and looking after a child who's autistic actually has some similarities and we were really laughing about how many things that we had in common with what on the surface would seem like very different experiences and um and it, it was at that point after that conversation I realized you know what actually what I want to write about is carers that's what I want to write about I want to write about the experience of caring caring for another human being because it is such a common experience and it's something we don't talk about very often um and you know I cared for my mother and I was I am now caring for my son who's he's 10 and he's autistic and he has learning difficulties and 
I think one of the things that had been really terrifying when he was first diagnosed was that I didn't know what I was doing as a parent. I didn't know what I was doing with an autistic child, but I had been a carer and I knew how hard it was. I knew how hard it was to have that responsibility and having a child who's disabled, who's very unlikely to be independent when he's older means that I have this responsibility now for the rest of my life. And that was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. And so that's what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about what's, what it's like to be responsible for another human being and to, for, their, for their life to be dependent on yours, whether it's their quality of life or their actual survival. And so I spoke to loads of different carers in all different kinds of situations, um, but mostly long-term situations. So I didn't I, try, I, I, I decided not to focus on um, elderly care and end-of-life care particularly because I wanted to focus on people who were doing it for very long periods of time. So um, things like Huntington's disease, Alzheimer's, um, children born with uh, disabilities like cerebral palsy or um, developmental disorders um, and also people who've acquired brain injuries um, and acquired chronic illnesses as well in their adult life and people who are supporting partners. Um, with those kinds of things. It must have been quite a cathartic process to, to write the book and, and interview lots of different people from different walks of life. I loved doing all the interviews. The interviews were such a joy. Every person I spoke to, I learned so much from. Um, I think every caring situation is completely different and very unique. Um, and that's, you know, not just to do with the kind of a disability or chronic illness that somebody has, but also to do with the relationship that you have with that person and also your life circumstances around it as well. Um, and I just learned so much from these absolutely incredible people who, some of whom are doing incredibly challenging things, um, but they're all also leading really rich, full lives. Um, caring is a big part of their life, but it enriches it as much as it challenges them. So, um, yeah, it was just wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Um, and I know a number of them got back in touch with me afterwards because I did, because it's a very sensitive topic, whenever um, I wrote up sections where people were included, I sent the, the copy off to them just to get them to fact check it and also make sure they're comfortable with what they disclosed because I wanted, I didn't want anything in the book to be for anyone to decide they were uncomfortable with what they revealed in our conversation and so I just had people check them over and lots of people got back in contact with me afterwards and said oh I just can't tell you how the process of articulating what I've been through as a carer has been so helpful and I think that was something I hadn't quite anticipated that it would be helpful for all of us to put our stories in order in a way yeah that I couldn't I couldn't have anticipated before so that was also really really wonderful um the process of writing it from start to finish was an absolute joy. I have to say it was so enjoyable and that might be surprising for people to hear because I've written about some very, very difficult things in there. Um, you know, I talk about, you know, the death of children and, um, you know, caring for partners who have really catastrophic injuries. And I mean, you would think that it would be a very difficult thing to write, but actually it was just amazing and I think that really just comes down to the incredible people that I spoke to um and I hope that it's as enjoyable to read in that sense as it was to write because to me even though I'm writing about some quite difficult things 
to me, the whole process was very hopeful and very optimistic and it felt really positive. Oh, it sounds like it's an amazing book and I've, I have read, read parts of it and I know that there are so many people out there that are going to get um, a huge amount out of it. And I'm going to include a link to uh, the book in the show notes for people um, to, to take a look at it there. Okay, we're moving on to some questions from the children at Children's Bereavement Charity, Winston's Wish. The first one is, how do you make yourself feel happy when you're feeling sad? Um, I think particularly at the moment, I'm relying a lot on looking outside at <laughs> the sky and at trees and getting outside for a walk. And I'm also relying quite heavily on audiobooks as well. So really good fiction that when I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed, I lose myself in a really good story. That really helps me. Okay, so next question is, what piece of music reminds you of your mum? Oh, I'm going to say, you know, it's funny. We didn't listen to a lot of music when I was growing up in our house particularly. Um, we watched a lot of films <laughs> and all of the music um, that I remember from my childhood is all music from films, film scores. Um, my dad works in films, so... Um, so that was, if music was playing, it was generally a film score or a musical score. Um, so I would, I'm going to say the theme tune from The Man from Snow River, who, if any Australians are listening, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a classic Australian film. Um, and so, yeah, the theme tune from The Man from Snow River. Okay, next question is, what do you do to remember your mum on important days across the year? Um, on her birthday, we have a cake here at home so uh i'll either just buy one or bake one and i'll have cake with my kids um and then on the anniversary of her death my mum was catholic technically i suppose i'm catholic too but um i'm non-practicing <laughs> so i always um i always go and find a catholic church and light a candle for her and i find that really comforting first of all because catholic church usually not now usually their doors are open all the time and I find that um really comforting and I find the space and the environment of a church very comforting um and I love the ritual of, of going in and lighting a candle and I know she would have appreciated it because that meant something to her so they're probably the two main things but also you know the last couple of years actually um posting her photograph on Instagram. I know it sounds like nothing and so tiny, but it's actually really lovely. And and um, quite a few of my mum's friends follow me on Instagram and I love having chats with them when I when I put up a photo and they remember that summer and they remember my mum exactly at that point as well. And also my child, I'm still very close to a lot of my childhood friends who knew my mother very well as well. So I know that they enjoy seeing her photo up there as well. So that feels really good. And so a couple of times a year, I'll post a photo of her on Instagram as well. Lighting a candle, I always find really quite a healing process, a great way of sort of sitting down and just, you know, remembering my dad. So, yeah, I love that one. Okay, the uh, next question is, what three things are you most thankful for at the moment? Oh, at the moment. Well, <clears throat> number one, which I'm sure a lot of people are feeling right now, my home. I'm so grateful that I have this lovely little house um very grateful that i have a mortgage so i can have a mortgage break <laughs> um but yeah i've always been very very grateful for this home but i feel like at the moment it's sort of you know incredibly at the front of my mind what else i'm incredibly grateful for technology 
at the moment. Um, obviously, that's a way that we're able to stay connected. Um, uh, and the way I think particularly for my daughter, who obviously is not allowed to see anyone at the moment either and who is a massive extrovert and is missing her friends, technology has been um, really, really helpful for us. And um, the other thing I'm incredibly grateful at the moment is um, my son's school because it has remained open um, and my son has been able to keep going. Not all the children are going, only about, I think, a quarter or a third of the children are going, um, the children with the highest need. Um, they, I, they have been absolutely incredible, absolutely incredible, and I just, you know, cannot thank them enough. Um, I think it's it's not always easy to talk about the fact that my son has been able to stay at school when most children in the country have not been allowed to. Um, it's also a little bit um, difficult in a way um, knowing that teachers are there because of him and putting themselves at risk for the kids who really, really need them. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful. But yeah, it's not it's not easy knowing that our family needs that kind of support and that we can't manage without it. Um, my son was at home for five weeks because of uh, a self-isolation period and then also the Easter holidays. And it was incredibly challenging and I knew that it, there was no way we could continue without any support. Um, yeah, so I'm very, very, very grateful for them at the moment. Okay, so one last question, which I do like to end on, is if you could sit down with your mum for one last time, what do you think you might like to say to her? Oh, I think I just, I think I just want to thank her for, for everything she did and how hard she tried. We have all these, all these questions, all these emotions, all these feelings that we would like to say to the loved ones that are no longer here. And uh, yeah, I'm sure that'll be perfect. But Penny, I just want to say a huge thank you for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story. Um, you know, everyone's grief is individual; it's all unique. And um, I know that there are so many people out there that get a lot out of our conversation, and and also get a lot out of your new book which is coming and uh, I just want to say a big thank you oh it was an absolute pleasure thank you so much for inviting me